You know, both friends and enemies of the Christian faith have recognized that the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be the foundation stone of our faith. Uh, if Jesus was raised from the dead, it really was the most sensational event of all history. Uh, if he was raised from the dead, then we have conclusive answers to the most profound questions of our existence. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And if Jesus was raised from the dead, we certainly know that God exists and that there is something that is waiting for us beyond this life because the universe takes on new meaning, new purpose, and it's possible to experience the living God, the creator of the universe, in our own lives. If it is true, it is the most significant uh, event of all history, providing the only path to our creator. And these and many other wonderful things are true if Jesus certainly was risen from the dead. On the other hand, if you think about it, if Christ was not risen from the dead, then Christianity is an interesting museum piece at best. It has no objective validity or reality. It is a nice thought, certainly uh, nice bedtime stories and things like that, but it certainly isn't get worth all steamed up about. Those martyrs who went singing to their graves at the lion's dens. They were taking this message to others, but they were just simply poor, deluded fools. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, it is the most wicked, cruel hoax that has ever been brought upon mankind. But I want you to understand both Jesus and the Apostle Paul was willing to put everything, everything at stake on the reality of this one event. You might remember in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the sign of your authority that you're doing these things? He responded by saying that uh, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Uh, and then he said, no sign will be given unto it except for Jonah, the sign of Jonah the prophet, who just as he was in the belly of the sea monster for three days, so also will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days, referring to his death, burial, and resurrection, proving that he is who he says he was. In John chapter 2, early on in his ministry, you'll remember that he drove out the money changers in the temple. And again, the Jewish leaders asked him for a sign of doing this, and he responded by saying to them, you tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it back up again. Now, they didn't understand it. They said, you know, it took us 40 years to build this. But John looks back on this after the resurrection and says he was not speaking of the temple physically, but the temple of his body, speaking of the resurrection. And so his triumphal burst from the grave after three days was the ultimate proof of his deity. And Paul says so in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 that he has furnished proof with power through the resurrection that he is the Son of God. And it is the assurance that death itself cannot prevent him from keeping every appointment, every promise that he made. We can be assured that he will keep that. In fact, the Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if the dead are not raised, if Jesus was not raised, that we, our preaching is in vain. He says our faith is in vain, that the apostles are false witnesses, that all of us are still in our sins, that the dead who have already de died there to perish to, to no longer be raised again, and that we of all men are most pitiful. The resurrection is the foundation upon which we base our hope in Jesus Christ. And even the enemies of Christ know this. If the resurrection can be disproven, then the whole Bible is just simply a hoax. And that's why the evidence for this event has been examined more carefully than the, any other evidence for any other event. 
in all history. And so it shouldn't surprise us that those skeptics and atheists and others, that they had their fiercest attacks against the resurrection. And that's why we need to know why the resurrection is true. If the resurrection actually occurred in history, then it stands as the single greatest testimony to Christianity and the validity of the scriptures. But if the resurrection can be proven to be a hoax, to be false, then brethren, we might as well go home. Throw away your Bibles and live however you want to live. This, why even have this gospel meeting? In fact, why even be a Christian if the resurrection is not true? And so the question before us in this hour is, was Jesus really risen from the dead? Did he arise from the dead? Did he resurrect? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. And as we do so, I want you to put yourself in the place of a jury. And the crucifixion, or rather the resurrection, is on trial. And I want to just present the evidence this morning. We're going to look at evidence A and, and exhibit B and, and so forth. Present it as if a, a, a prosecution would present this forward. And we're just going to look at the facts that are known about the resurrection. And uh, as uh, is it Sergeant Friday of Dragnet used to say, just, just the facts, please, ma'am, or whatever it was uh, before my time. But anyway, they, uh, that's what we're going to look at today, just the facts. What does the facts say? And uh, you be... You be the jury and decide which one makes most sense to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead or he was not. Let's first of all look at the historical evidence. And just simply one of the things we got to sit, uh, sit forward here, set forward here, is the fact that Jesus was a real man, man of history, that he was not a, a myth or a legend. Uh, you know, there are ancient secular writers such as Thallus and Philegion and Josephus and Pliny the Younger and Cornelius Tacitus and Hadrian and Sidonius and Lucian. They all mentioned Christ and his followers in their writings. They didn't necessarily follow him, but they mentioned him. He was a true man. And you think about all the rabbinic literature, uh, those Jews who wrote so much about him. They mentioned Jesus. They don't believe he was the, the Messiah. They believe he was a false prophet. But they mentioned him as a real person that they put to death. And then there are all those martyrs of the first century and the, the second century, those confessors, those early leaders who wrote about Jesus. Uh, understand that there is not a tremendous amount of contemporary references for any ancient historical figure, but there is so much for this man to just simply say he lived and he died on a cross. And given the fact that Jesus' world was extremely small, the references that are made about him are truly significant. And so we cannot deny that Jesus was a true man in history that lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine. Now, I want to open it up, by the way, to discussions and questions and call on you for participation. But how do we know, or in what way does the evidence say that Jesus died? A very simple question to put out there. How did Jesus die? He died on a cross, on a Roman cross. As we're going to look at in just a little bit, some postulate that Christ did not really die. But I think all the evidence goes in the opposite direction of that. The Roman soldiers who were in charge of the crucifixion that day, they made sure that he was dead. You remember in John chapter 19, when they came to Jesus, there were three men who were on the, cross, the crosses that day. And you remember they came to the first man and what did they do to ensure that he died? Broke his legs. They came to the second man and what did they do? Broke his legs. But when they came to Jesus, what did they do? Didn't, yeah, didn't do anything at first because they saw that what? He was already dead. Now, here's a Roman soldier in charge of a crucifixion. Do you think he knew a dead man when he saw one? Absolutely. And so just to make sure what John says he saw him do, somebody said it, he, he did what? 
pushed a, a, a spear in his side. And what came out? Now remember, he's hanging on the cross. And so as he puts a spear up, he would have gone up under the ribs and probably right into the heart. If the man was not dead, he would have been dead by that point. And what he saw, John saw come out was both blood and water. Some suggest that when a person has a heart attack or when a person dies, sometimes the pericardium around the heart produces water. And thus the spear that punctured his heart also punctured that that, uh, pericardium around the heart, releasing that water. He had already died. There was certainly great proof that Jesus was dead. In fact, the centurion who was at the bottom, uh, or, or rather the soldier at the bottom of the cross, when Jesus breathed his last breath, He said, surely this was the Son of God. He knew this man had died. And Joseph of Arimathea comes to him asking, comes to Pilate asking him for the body of Jesus. But Pilate wasn't going to give up the body that very simply. Instead, what did he ask for? Proof that Jesus was already dead. He ascertained from him in in Mark chapter 15 that he was already dead. And the soterium went and checked. He came back and and showed and said, yes, Jesus was dead. Again, let me stress to you, a Roman soldier knew a dead person when he saw one. And so all the evidence goes to the fact that Jesus died. There is no historical evidence whatsoever to say that Jesus did not die on the cross. In fact, the idea that he didn't really die on the cross is an invention of modern unbelievers. All the available evidence to us shows us that Jesus indeed died, and we have to be satisfied with that. Now, after he died, what did they do with the body? Buried. They buried it. And, and what, what's that? Where did they bury him? In a tomb. That's exactly right. You remember that Jesus, uh, Joseph goes and asks, Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus, and they bury him in the tomb. And it says in John chapter 19, and the way in which they buried him was according to the custom of the Jews, which is interesting. Romans would leave a body on a cross for many days, in fact, many weeks sometimes, just to show the embarrassment of what he did, the humiliation. But the Jews were not allowed to leave a body on the cross, according to the law of Moses, overnight in the book of Deuteronomy. And so they took down the body, especially with the Passover coming on and the, and the, uh, and, excuse me, the, the, the Sabbath, the high Sabbath. And so they took him down and prepared him according to the Jewish custom. And what they would do then is they would wash the body with warm water. And you'll remember that Nicodemus brought aloes and myrrhs, 100 pounds weight, and they would wrap the body of Jesus. Uh, historians say that they would take all kinds of linen wrappings and, and, and put all kinds of aloes and myrrhs and everything around the body to, to preserve it as long as they possibly could, wrap it up. And sometimes it would be one to 200 pounds worth of linen wrappings. And then they would cover the face with a with a uh, face cover, a head cover over the body. I want to tell you, if Jesus wasn't dead by that point, when they wrapped him, it certainly would have been suffocated. He would have certainly have died. And uh, next, with all the the uh, all of these things that that are happening here, they laid him in the tomb. Now, what do we know specifically about the tomb? How is it described to us? It was a new tomb that was hewn out of rock. So, since it's hewn out of rock. There was no back door. There's no way of escape. And it's a new tomb, and that's very significant too. Why would that be significant that it was a new tomb? Well, there's no other bodies in there, right? Okay, so on the third day, when people come and look and see that that Jesus is gone, they can't mistake it for some other body, that some other body is gone. They couldn't say, no, wait, Jesus is right here. There was no bodies left on on the third day. 
And so understand that it negates the possibility of mistaking Jesus uh, being stolen. Now, also we understand about the, what do we know about the security of the tomb? Yeah, it was guarded. You remember that the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and said, this deceiver said that he's going to rise in three days, which is interesting, by the way. They got it and the disciples didn't, that he's going to be uh, raised up, his claim to be raised up in three days. And they said, we know that the, the disciples might come and try to steal the body. So Pilate says, you have a guard, use it as you need to. And so they did. They took it and they, they took the guard and set that up. And, and, and a Roman guard, you have to understand, was designed to, uh, to, to cover a certain amount of ground there, protect six feet of ground around them. And it, they used sometimes a four to 16 man force. And four of them would be on guard while others slept. The other 12 or, or, or took a break and they would rotate duty. And so it had been virtually impossible to mess with the tomb. If the uh, soldiers would have failed in their duty, what would have happened to them? Yeah, they would have been put to death. You think about the Philippian jailer who thinks that his prisoners have escaped. What's he about to do? Kill himself because he knew that if he didn't, others would kill him. In fact, remember in Acts chapter 12, when Peter has miraculously escaped from prison, the first thing that Herod wants to do is put those men who are supposed to be watching him to death, and we assume that they were put to death. And another thing about how did they close the tomb? What was in front of the, t- the tomb there? Big stone. Yeah, a big stone. In fact, one and a half to two ton stone. And the entrances to tombs were usually four to five feet, and they had the massive large round stone that was rolled in front of it into this groove that went downhill. And so once it rolled down in front of the place where it was supposed to be, it would be very difficult to roll upward. It would be something that would take many men to do that. In fact, the stone that was placed in front of Jesus' tomb, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 4, they says is extremely large. And so it would have been very difficult to move. And finally then, the stone was sealed over with a cord with a wax on each end and had the governor's signet in there. And anyone who broke that would be, again, in trouble with the Roman government. So all this shows us that the tomb was secured with great caution. And the details of the burial of Jesus are important because they help us to understand the tremendous evidence for the resurrection. So what happens now three days later on Sunday morning? Yeah, he rose from the dead. They come to the grave, and it is his body is missing. The seal is broken, the consequences of which were severe. The stone is rolled away, which is a difficult feat at best. The guard has fled, which is an act punishable by death. And the grave clothes, what, what do we know about the grave clothes that they do find there? Yeah, folded and neatly put in place. That's what Peter sees as he stoops into the tomb on the first day of the week. Now, who are the first people to notice that Jesus is missing? Yeah, the, the, the women, right? There are at least four or five women who come to the grave. We, we know about Mary and Mary and Mary. <laughs> if you're in doubt, just say Mary. And then there was Salome and, of course, Joanna, and it says the other women in Luke chapter 23. And so uh, there, are, there are 24. There are these, uh, these women who come, and they find the grave empty, which is very interesting. There's two reasons I think it's very interesting that the women are mentioned as the first witnesses uh, to, the, to the resurrection. Number one is that their names are mentioned in the text. 
And we have to understand that the gospel writings were written within 20 or 30 years, some of the, at least the synoptics were. Uh, and so these women were probably still alive. And people could go to Mary, 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 and, and Joanna, and Salome, and say to them, is this really what happened? And they could either deny it or they could affirm, yes, this is what happened. These women were still alive. Second of all, it's very interesting that women were called the first witnesses because in a legal system in the Jewish day in the first century, women were not considered valid witnesses in a law of court. And so if people are making up this story, if this is all made up, then you're not going to put women as the first witnesses to all this. You're going to use somebody who can be considered in their, their day and age more valid witnesses to this. You would include men as the first witnesses. What that shows us is they're just reporting the facts. They're not making these things up. I think that's very powerful in terms of the authenticity of the accounts. But then after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he is then seen by many eyewitnesses. Paul claimed that there's a substantial number of witnesses. You look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't take the time to read that right now, but he mentions several there who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. In fact, in one place he says in Galilee that he, was, he appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. You know, I want you to think about that for just a moment. If uh, someone came into a court of law and they stood up as a witness and, and uh, they brought forward and, uh, as a witness and they said, you know what, I saw Mark break into uh, somebody's house the other day. And you say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Then the next witness comes up and he says, well, I saw Mark break into this house the other day. And then a third witness comes up. You know, by that point, we'd say, surely Mark did this. But imagine if 500 witnesses came forward and said, I saw Mark do this very event. We would certainly believe that. It would be the most lopsided uh, trial in all of history. Here are 500 witnesses who said that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the recorded appearances of Jesus occurred from the morning of his resurrection to 40 days later at his ascension. And there are 10 distinct appearances that are recorded. There probably were many more. But they show great variety as to time and place. Three of them were to individuals, to Mary Magdalene, to James, the brother of Jesus, and then Peter. There were appearances to disciples as a group, to the women. And again, one was to 500 assembled brethren. And, the, and the, the appearances were in different places. Some were at the garden near his tomb. Some were in the upper room. Uh, one was on the road to Emmaus, and some were as far away as Galilee. And the eyewitnesses published what they saw in the Bible. And perhaps, uh, you know, what would you think is the most significant eyewitness after the resurrection? Who do you think is the most significant? And this is simply an opinion uh, question here. Who would you point out would probably be the most significant witness to the resurrection? Paul. Yeah, Thomas. I, I like Thomas, to be honest with you. I like Thomas because I'm a Thomas. I'm a skeptic. I want to see it to believe it. That's the way I am. And that's, you can't help but think that that would be me in that situation. I don't believe I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And certainly Thomas, once he saw it, was convinced. But I tell you what, Paul seems to be the most significant one to me as well. Because here's a man who was completely against Christianity. In fact, he was on the road to go and put Christians in prison when he sees Jesus and his life is changed. And no longer is he an enemy of Christ, 
but he is one who is the strongest supporter of Christianity in the first century, it seems. What would change a man that drastically unless he actually saw Jesus resurrected from the dead? But here's the question. Are these witnesses credible? You know, these disciples who were downtrodden at the death of Jesus, where were they? They all fled, right? Now they become the most uh, bold preachers of his resurrection and willing to die for it. In fact, on the first day of the week, when Jesus appears to the apostles, at least 10 of them, where were they? They were in an upper room with the door closed because of the Jews. In other words, they're afraid now that the Sabbath is over, the Jewish leaders are going to come do to us the same thing that they did to our master. And so they're scared about it until they see the resurrection. And these witnesses stand for truth and honesty. They lived and they died for it. Would it make sense to believe that liars were responsible for preaching and dying for the greatest morals ever known to man? Could a fabricated lie account for their change of behavior and their willingness to die for the resurrection of Jesus? What could they have gained by lying? Nothing except for death. So all of the evidence points to the credibility of these witnesses. Only bias would cause one to impeach their character as credible witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that's just simply the facts. That's what we know from history. Did Jesus rise from the dead? He either did or he didn't. And the facts seem to suggest that he did. There are two things that need to be dealt with, two essential facts. And that is that there is an empty grave that has to be accounted for. And number two, that there are all these witnesses who say that they saw Jesus after he died on the cross. So how do you explain that if Jesus was not raised from the dead? Well, there have been many attempts that have been made to try to explain that away. And I want to use the rest of the time that we have here this morning to look at the other side. Let the defendant bring forth a case that Jesus was not raised from the dead. And we'll consider what the facts actually are. One explanation, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, some have said to explain away Jesus supposedly being raised from the dead, that he really wasn't, was the fact that his body was stolen. Uh, and this is the earliest explanation, by the way, that was circulated. You remember in Matthew chapter 28 that the soldiers who were at the grave of the cross when they saw everything that had happened, they ran to the Jewish leaders and they said, look, Jesus' body is gone. And remember the Jewish leaders said, look, we're going to give you some money and you, if you're questioned about this, you just tell people that the disciples came in the middle of the night and they stole the body. And of course, uh, they said, if, any, if this comes to the ears of the Roman governor or any of the leaders, we'll cover for you. Uh, now, the, they gave the soldiers some money here to explain that someone came and stole the body while they were asleep. In fact, that, that story is so obviously false that Matthew doesn't even take the time to refute it. He just simply states it as if the reader would say, yeah, that's, that's false. Because if you think about it, what judge would listen to you if you said, you know what, my next door neighbor came in the middle of the night and he stole my TV, it's gone. Well, what were you doing? Did you see him? No, I was asleep. Well, they would laugh you out of court because who knows what goes on when you're asleep. The testimony, of course, would be laughed out of any court. And how can a Roman uh, a guard say that this happened while we were asleep? 
of course, there would be some punishment if that would happen. Uh, stealing the body of, uh, of, of Christ was something that was completely foreign to the character of the disciples and everything that we know about it. It would mean that they are perpetrators of a deliberate lie and they were responsible for the deception of, and the ultimate death of thousands of disciples. Disciples were not in a state of mind to steal the body. You remember, again, what happened when Jesus was arrested? Where all the disciples go? They were scattered. They all fled. They forsook him. And they were forlorn over what happened. Again, they were fearful of the Jews and locked themselves up. They were in no mood to take the body. And if they had attempted to steal the body while the soldiers slept, could they have moved that large stone which several women could not move on, on Sunday morning without even waking up uh, a single soldier? And I also want you to think about this. Remember, what do we know about the grave clothes that were, that were found by Peter again? They were all nicely folded and put in place, weren't they, where the body of Jesus had been. You know, if, a, if somebody broke into your house in the middle of the night or while you were gone on vacation, they broke in, how do they leave the place? It's torn up, isn't it? They don't stop to do your laundry and fold things and dust things and wash your windows or anything like that. They get in there and they get out of there as quickly as they can. They don't take the time to fold the grave clothes. And so that certainly could not have happened in the case of Jesus. And this theory doesn't account for the behavior of the disciples after they claimed to see Jesus. What would turn a band of forlorn people into a group of bold preachers who were willing to die for what they taught? You know, how many people will die for a lie? Not many. You might say, well, Jonathan, there have been lots of people who have died for a lie. Don't Mormons die for a lie? Don't they die for what is false? Well, that's true, but did they know it was a lie when they died for it? You see, people will die for what they believe it's true, even if it's actually false. But rarely will people die for what they know is not true. Men generally tell the truth under torture or on their deathbeds. And think about this. If the disciples did steal the body, then they would have known that they're telling lies about the resurrection. Does it make sense that they were willing to die for that? What could they have possibly gained by such action? And it's inconceivable to me to think that all 11 apostles stuck to a story that they knew was false. And one other thing before we move on to this, what would, what would they do with the body? I mean, how would, you, how would you get rid of that? How did they manage to hide it so successfully? And if they did steal the body, we still need to account for all the alleged resurrection appearances. So the stolen thought body theory just doesn't adequately explain the facts that we know. The second attempt to explain away the resurrection is that the Roman authorities came in and they moved the body. But the question would be this, why would they do that? Having put guards in front of the tomb, what would be their motive for moving the body? And what about the silence of the authorities in the face of the apostles' bold preaching about the resurrection? I mean, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they were just seething. They were trying to figure out how can we get rid of Christianity? How can we shut up these apostles who are, who are speaking so boldly about Jesus being resurrected? Remember, they arrested Peter and John and beat them in an attempt to close their mouths in Acts chapter 4. But, you know, there was a very simple solution to their problem. If they knew that they had stolen the body that the, the Jewish leaders had, and, and that these people are preaching about a resurrection when it really had not happened, what could they have simply done to solve this problem? 
Yeah, no, they could just say, here's the body and paraded it through the streets of Jerusalem and they could have stamped Christianity in its cradle before it even took off. Seeing that they didn't do that proves that they didn't have the body. Another suggestion is that, well, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Uh, that, that in the early morning that the women who were distraught, they were overcome by grief. They weren't thinking in their right mind. Maybe it was foggy. And so they went to the wrong tomb early on Sunday morning. And in their distress, maybe they imagined that Christ had risen from the tomb. However, remember that at the, at the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23 and verse 55, the women carefully observed where they buried Jesus. And also, this theory falls before the same one that the previous theory did. If you think about it, if women went to the wrong tomb, all the priest had to do is go to the right tomb and say, no, here it is. It's still right here. And it's inconceivable to think that all of Jesus' followers would have fallen to the same mistake. Maybe the women got it wrong, but Peter and John ran right to the same tomb, and they found an empty tomb as well. And certainly Joseph of Arimathea would have known where his own tomb was. It was his tomb. And in addition, it has to be remembered that this is a private burial ground. Today, we bury people in cemeteries. Everybody's buried together. That wasn't the case back then. You buried somebody where you owned a plot of ground. And so it wasn't like they went to a cemetery and they couldn't decide which tomb it was. This was out in the middle of Joseph of Arimathea's lot in his garden there. And uh, it certainly would have been uh, uh, easy to distinguish. So certainly it was not the wrong tomb. But maybe a most popular one in recent years, and I say over the last 150 years or so, is something called the swoon theory. And in this view, Christ didn't really die on the cross. But instead, he was mistakenly reported to have died because of uh, exhaustion and pain and blood loss. But then when he would laid in the coolness of the tomb, his body then revived and he came out of the tomb and he appeared to his disciples who mistakenly thought that he had risen from the dead. Well, I want you to understand that this theory is of a modern construction. It's significant that not a suggestion of this kind has come down from antiquity among all the violent attacks that have been made on Christianity over the years. As I already pointed out, the evidence points to the fact that Jesus certainly did die, and there is no historical evidence to show that Jesus survived the cross. Roman crucifixion teams were far too efficient to allow that to happen. And I want you to think about this. Here is a man who had been very stressed out, Jesus. He had been up all night. He was sweating even teardrops of blood, or sweat drops of blood. He had been beaten a couple of times, even a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He is forced to carry his own cross, and he cannot do that. Because of exhaustion, he has to have someone come along and help him with that. And then he is nailed to a cross, and he has been on this cross for several hours, excruciating pain. And then we're to believe that he is laid into this tomb, and then he revives. He unwraps all of these bandages, maybe 200 pounds worth. He gets up, and he's able by himself to move a one and a half to two pound stone uphill without a single soldier waking up or seeing it. I tell you, that's probably even more miraculous to think about than, than, than the resurrection itself. 
the fact that how could that possibly have happened? Very difficult to think about. And if this theory is correct, I want you to understand that Christ himself was involved in flagrant lies. And his disciples believed and preached that he was dead and came alive again. Jesus did nothing to dispel that belief, but rather encouraged it. Again, the only theory that adequately explains the tomb being empty and the resurrection happening is the fact that Jesus did resurrect according to the scriptures. And there are other theories that are put out there that everyone was hallucinating that uh, there's been some pretty wild ideas that, that there was these wild mushrooms that grew across uh, Palestine and everybody was eating them and they had a sort of an LSD type of experience. But, you know, people will go to dishonest means to try to prove something just so that there aren't consequences. And that is, uh, you know, believing and following the Bible. But let me leave you this morning with these thoughts about the implications of the resurrection. If Jesus indeed was resurrected, and this is really what people are trying to, to avoid are these implications, but if Jesus was raised from the dead, there are certain facts that stand, and that is, number one, that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he said that I'm going to die and be resurrected. And if he was, it is the ultimate proof that he indeed is the Son of God, as it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Second of all, the fact that Christ was resurrected means that all of us are going to be resurrected as well. And we're going to stand before a judge someday. In Acts chapter 17, that's exactly what Paul tells the Athenians. He says that he is going to, we're going to stand before the judge who has furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, we're going to stand before him as judge. Thirdly, the resurrection is the foundation for our hope of one day being resurrected. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that we have a hope that is based upon the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, our hope is in vain. It's just more wishful thinking. Fourthly, the resurrection and biblical moral lifestyle are linked together. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 32. He said, if the dead are not raised, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, this is all life is. This is what it's all about. Might as well live however we want to live. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then everything that he says is true, and we're going to have to give an answer for our lifestyle, how we are living, not just here at this building, but throughout the week. Don't allow others to rob you of your confidence of a resurrection. If you do, you forfeit your basis for morality. And it's in this context that Paul says, evil companions corrupt good morals. Don't allow others to affect your lifestyle as a Christian. Fifthly, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then the resurrection will cause us to worship Christ. You know, it's interesting, almost every appearance uh, to, of Jesus after in the Synoptic Gospels. After Jesus was raised from the dead, they fall down and worship him. And we see the same even with Thomas as he says, my Lord and my God. When we believe that there really is an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem, it will impact our lives with enthusiasm and with excitement. We'll no longer have to be begged to come to assemblies. We will sing praises, we will live daily for him, and we will do it joyfully. But we also have to understand that if Jesus was raised from the dead, finally, then we're going to tell other people about it. You know, how can we keep that in? 
that the man has been raised from the dead. What if you're reading in the Columbus Dispatch and you find out a man who'd been dead for three days and all of a sudden is revived and he's walking around? You'd be telling everybody about that, wouldn't you? Well, why do we keep it back when we're talking about our Lord? We need to tell everyone, as the apostle said, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we've heard, referring to the resurrection. You see, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord. What do you think? We can't be neutral because not to make a choice is to reject Jesus. Was Jesus a liar? Was he making up all of this? That's what the Jewish leaders said. They said that deceiver, remember? Any time a person rejects Jesus as the Son of God, they are essentially calling him a liar. But could a scheming liar really be responsible for the greatest teachings ever known? Would a liar of that caliber teach the things that Jesus taught? I think that view is inconsistent with the evidence of what we know about Jesus and his life and his teaching and finally his resurrection. So maybe Jesus was a lunatic. Maybe he just thought that he was the Lord. Maybe he thought he was God and he was crazy, didn't know his own identity. But you study the skill and the depth of which he taught and you see that that's inconsistent with the idea of being a lunatic. Everything about him suggests mental soundness. The only third option is, is that Jesus is Lord. And when we study the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, how can we come to any other conclusion? When all the evidence is presented, all we can do is be like Thomas and fall down at his feet and say, my Lord and my God. That is the only conclusion that the evidence warrants. My question for you today, is that your conclusion? I hope that it is. Thank you for your attention this morning.